0: Hello friends! Welcome to Silo Busting. I'm your host, Allison Coton, an interaction designer at EPAM Continuum. So here's something I've learned as a designer and erstwhile participant in software development processes. There's really never a moment when the creative work stops. As a new digital product rolls over the waterfall or darts agilely towards launch, at every stage there are puzzles to solve, new experiments, solutions to hone towards elegance and delight. There's a craft and a poetics of code in the same way that there are aesthetics of color, typeface, haptics, the whole world of visual interface. In this latest Cybersecurity by Design episode of Silo Busting, Sam Raymond, Chief Information Security Officer and SVP of EPAM, talks our Ken Gordon through the processes of creating a secure software development lifecycle, or as some say, SDLC. I think you'll be intrigued, like I was, to hear about a development approach that elevates designing for security, weaving it through the processes of product development so that the software we use and the systems that repel malicious attacks are inextricably linked. When I'm relying on digital tools to buy coffee, manage my budget, even report on my health, and let's be real, who isn't using about 100 more apps since eight months ago, I'm part of an elaborate interconnected ecosystem of vendors, suppliers, and data repositories. In this ever-expanding world, I'd like to think approaches to cybersecurity are equally creative, holistic, interdisciplinary. Let's hear Sam tell us how it's done.
1: Okay, Sam. Hello. How you doing, man?
2: Hey, Ken. Good, good. on you?
1: I'm great. I'm, I'm happy to have you back on Silo Busting, and I want to talk today about SDLC. Are you ready to talk about it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? Well, tell tell, tell, tell our listeners first, what exactly is SDLC, and how does it relate to cybersecurity, or how should it relate to cybersecurity?
2: Okay. So, I'll, I'll, I'll start with SDLC. So, SDLC, I think, by itself, is um, it's, it's a well-known term by now, the last, I would say, 15, 20 years which is really about software development life cycle. So software, just like um, it, in many ways, uh, it, it follows a flow. There is, you know, Agile or waterfall and all these process we could talk about, but no matter how you look at it, it follows a flow. The flow really is you need to design things, you need to understand requirements. And, you know, if you go old waterfall, you have a planning phase and development phase, and you know, QA and so on. If Agile is much more Agile, yeah. And you basically have product management, product owner pulling in requirements, understanding what's the best fit for the market, you know, testing it out, maybe the ideas, putting in the backlog. A team would actually extract out what should go into a sprint or next release and so and so, pull that into and develop it. What should go in there? How do you develop it? What kind of metrics should you watch for? Um, How how do you set the different kinds of of parameters around it so that you can write your software in a more structured way? All these things, all these definitions, when do you test it, what do you test, functional testing, non-functional requirements, all these aspects of it, I mean, ultimately what you want is you want to increase the, 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 the predictability to some degree, which is you want to make sure that it's, it's well thought out, the whole process of it. Software, yes, you can still write a piece of software sitting down, you know, a couple of minutes, or an hour, whatever it is, alone write a piece of software. However, imagine working with, you know, another seven people within your scrum team or another 50 people or another 100 people or another thousand working on a project you really need to collaborate in a way that you all have some level of consistency on how you build software so it, it allows the architect to to pull into you know their thoughts around how to maintain and me- make sure you can build robust software it allows the release manager to have a certain amount of assurance to say okay these are the steps that's been built so i can check on those steps and it allows management to see that, you know, there was some, you know, basically some reasoning and and and, and methods that it's madness. So all that is well defined. And, and now security in the old days were uh, mostly tucked into two parts, which is one is testing. And then the other part is incidents, which is, all right, sure, build it however you want to build it. Pick a method. And then before you ship it out, give me a copy of it. We'll scan it. We'll do whatever testing you need to do. Uh, we will even protect it, you know, to some degree, put some you know protection around it, and then you can ship it out. That comes in very late in the game, in in, in traditional sense. And uh, the other part of it is when something bad happens, then, you know, when that happens, then you do forensic, you would do research on it, then you would do mitigation, and so and so on, much more reactive. Where Secure SDLC comes in <clears throat> is... A much better way to do this is really around, uh, and and this is my definition of secure SDLC, which is building processes and controls into uh, your entire SDLC, your entire software development lifecycle, so that security is actually ingrained into the process, not as a stop-and-go, stop-and-go method, but it's actually built in and it's continuous. In a sense that every step of the way, security, just like usability, just like quality, just like robustness, it's it's built into the entire chain uh, of how you build software. It should not be at a very end and try to see you know what you can do to actually duct tape it and, and, and patch it up. Their design that's intrinsically more more um, much more secure, easier to protect. There are controls that should be in place before you actually, you know, release the code or actually build your final builds. Now, there, if you Google for this, however, secure SDLC, what you would see is, you know, and, and the goal is pretty clear. The, glo- the goal is to reduce the, the, the risk level. It's to reduce the set of vulnerabilities that potentially could be introduced into your software so that the chance of exploit is lower. Now, and and when I say reduce, it's really about reduction. There's never going to be a zero uh, uh, vulnerability. It's not possible. Software would always have defect. And and again, we could go into what definition of vulnerability is, but very simple. It's basically to do something that is not what is intended to do. That's what vulnerabilities are. So a bug, that's, you know, potentially that's what it is. And so software will have vulnerabilities. I could tell you that right now. The only question is, can they be used? Are they difficult to uh, to to mitigate? Are they easy for people to get into it and start daisy chaining and build out kill chain for it? I think that's the that's the question. So now, if you if you pull back a little bit, though, however, a lot of the the message you would hear from from if you just look for material out in net good material, but it's very much around. Oh yeah, secure S D L C means. I have a DevOps um, pipeline. I will put SAS and DAS, which is you know static analysis and dynamic analysis uh, in my code base into my binary. It runs as part of the steps. We have a checklist for them, and maybe we do some binary protection, and key protection at the end of it, and we're good to go. That's a secure SDLC. I would debate that actually that's that's the wrong way to look at it. I think we have done that uh, for years, especially the past 10 years. I think it's a very good step. I think the the problem with that is, you know, it 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 removes a lot of the very basic issues, which is, you know, you have buffer overflow here and there, that's great. But we're not dealing with the same kind of attackers anymore. We're dealing with a whole different group and, and and they have different ways to monetize completely different. So the hobbyist is still there, but that's good enough for the hobbyist. But for the professionals, I think we're we're looking at a different level. So to truly have a real secure SDLC, and, I, and when I say real, I, I don't mean a real oh just for you know military folks or DODs and so on. This is for everybody. Everybody needs this. If you're building a piece of software and you're releasing a piece of software where there's a website, where there's a mobile application, where there's an embedded application, it's out there. That's an entry point to the enterprise. You might not think that way. You might think that, well, but that's an application that's out there. You know, how how bad could it be? It calls an API to your services. It allows people to tap onto your client. It would affect your client base. It might have hints for people to actually figure out how to get in the enterprise. So if you have software that you present to your client, to the outside world, which everybody does, you need to take it seriously by introducing real software development lifecycle, which from my experience is really starting out from designing phase. You design an architecture, you build up your architecture with security in mind. We'll talk about how that could be done. And then you actually understand what the threat profile is for your application. You understand what your core assets are so that within your application, you know that those are your sacred things and that you cannot afford to lose or integrity of those things needs to be intact. And at least you have a visibility, understand it. Okay, that's it. And don't look at just the application that's deployed on a machine, like an endpoint and so on look at the whole system altogether because you don't know how it could get through it as long as they're connected somehow. And they're always connected these days. Then you need to understand what the core assets are. Have those core assets documented in your threat model, understand what the inputs and outputs are, build out that threat model so that as you actually design the application, you also understand that, you know, where those pieces are, that's, that's connected understand what the what the complexity is the balance between usability and security in fact I have a presentation coming up in one of the conference'll you know, I'll, I'll post about it on my social network about exactly that which is security and usability build that out as you're designing with your product managers and your security architects and then when you build your software don't forget your SAS and desk completely agree I'm not saying those are not those are great tools have those but also train the engineers educate them. Um, walk them through the latest you know, exploit, walk them through the latest incident. The more they understand what could be bad about it, um, the, the more they respect it. It's, I mean, engineers are I'm, like myself, counting myself. We're, we think um, we try to solve problems. Mm-hmm. However, if we can't see the problem, it's hard for us to understand why that's so important. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not about spreading fear. It's about explaining to them what those problems are, what potentially could happen. When you, expl- when you explain to one engineer who's never actually worked on binary level before and say, well, yes, this buffer is too close to the, you know, to the border, that could potentially split, you know, bleed over to another segment. It could do this, could do that. When you start going through that with them, their understanding goes up. That's when they would have a different level of appreciation for, you know, for security. Train them across the board that awareness is important due to scanning, due to, due to analysis, And fix those as much as you can. All the CVs, you can get your, you know, the critical ones and make sure they're fixed. When you test them, test them both from a scanning perspective, but also make sure that you would actually have enough of a pen testing, you know, done from an outside-in perspective. I could talk more about it, but basically look at it from the eyes of an attacker. Don't look Mm -hmm. at it from a defender's perspective. We Mm -hmm. always defend the same problem, right?
1: I got a question, Sam. How how common or how uncommon is secure SDLC of the sort you're talking about out there? Is it is it is it relatively common? Is it relatively uncommon? I'm curious to think about what you know uh, the percentage of of enterprises who are actually doing what you're talking about here is.
2: Right. I I think it, it's I think what is common though is I think people understand uh, thanks to DevOps. By the way, DevOps is a big change for everybody because it automates a lot of steps. Uh, used to be that, and I'm talking about 10 years ago, used to be that, you know, everybody talks about it, but they really run a pen testing or analysis once a year. That's the honest answer for a lot of organizations. Um, but then when DevOps happened, as part of the value, when people are searching for value for DevOps, in fact, they inject it, you know, scanning for open source software, scanning for vulnerability. That became a much more intrinsic thing thanks to to, to automation, really. That part is fairly common. What is not common, however, is I think the design part, which is having security at the table, be part of first-class citizen and and discuss what is a good feature, what is not a good feature. I think that's still very, very uncommon, I hate to say. Um, the part about actually looking at it from an outside-in perspective, a lot of people has to comply to ASVS you know, standards and other types of standards, they would do pen testing, but they really just do OOBs top 10, uh, they really just do a skin deep level of skin Th- those are those are good to prevent any kind of huge embarrassment you know like oh yeah somebody actually put a you know a, directly at an s3 bucket that's publicly accessible that's yeah but i think what's really important these days is especially for every vertical they have their own set of attacks that is very common a lot of copycats around you have retail with everybody was Magento being affected by page, you know, page uh, 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 card. If you look at, you know, a, a lot of the, the transactional systems, you, you look at the, the, the intrusion kit that's out there. And, and most of the situations are not the basic scans anymore. Not that, not that I'm saying don't do it, but you absolutely need to raise the game and to make sure that, you know, you could prevent those. But so, Unfortunately, it's still a, it's not a common uh, thing for most organization. And I think there are some low hanging fruit that you can, you could do, which is start with an outside in perspective, do that analysis, do it continuously. Every time you change a piece of code, yes, there is a chance of something changing. I'm not saying go crazy on it and do it every five minutes, but at the same time, when you change a piece of code, you know, consider updating your threat model and then looking at what that changes and 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 make sure you have a cadence of of the testing both from the expert and also with the internal team. So that has to that has to be in place if you if you need to compete in this in this new market in this new economy, especially now when everybody's rushing towards digital. There's one big aspect of it which is as people rushing towards digital because of covid and other factors, it's very easy to forget and, and throw a lot of software out there. And, and it's, you know, all it takes is just one major breach and um, it it would slow you down substantially more than, you know, the, all the effort that you could have done. And I would strongly recommend people to really look at, at their designs, really start with the design. And maybe if you don't know where to start, just do an assessment, look at it from a secure perspective, look at an assessment and then ask the team where is my highest level of threats are and, 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 you know, align that with your risk profile. Understanding what your risk tolerance is for various types of activity is the most important thing for executives.
1: Cool. Um, you mentioned COVID and the sort of rush to digital that we're seeing out there. Can you, you, we know that this has created a lot of new vulnerabilities out there. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the application vulnerabilities. What are the major types that people should be thinking about right now?
2: Yeah, so, so I mentioned a little bit about... Um, on, on COVID, I think I would answer those two separate questions. if We don't mind Ken. So one, one part is on, on COVID, it's really driving the adoption, right? I was, I was joking all the time. I actually like it, but you know, I've always wanted this to happen, which is, you know, I, I can't buy coffee without a an nap anymore. It's actually for a geek. It's actually a great thing. I <laughs> want that. I, just, not, I love talking to people, but still, I just want everything to be, you know, doable with a click of a button or just, you know, a, a, an audio, you know. Command. That's all I wanted, and all of a sudden, my phone would just order everything I need to do. So, as a geek, I love that. But, however, that's also driving a lot of the expansion of the attack surface because you know every one of that interaction potentially now could be could be uh, uh, an entry point for a payload. So, I think that's what's um, that's what's driving a, a, a lot of the attackers right now. There, there's another aspect of it that might not be very clear to people around the the attacks is that um because now they can actually get paid a lot easier i mentioned this a couple of times you know years and years ago when when a, when a bad person you know did something you know and stole something to get paid is when they get caught it's very difficult to get paid and, and not um and not be traced back to <clears throat> these days with with, with uh, btcs and stuff where you can you could potentially have transactions and much harder to trace back to makes it much easier for attackers to actually go out there and and attack and and with the expanding attack surface um that's really what's changing the game
1: another another thing i want to talk about um changing the game is things like cloud i was wondering about how cloud and app and data come together nowadays for security could you talk to about how those three things sort of align we have to think about them together
2: yeah, I, I think, so people like to think about cloud as another level of infrastructure, which I completely could understand um, uh, and, and agree in some ways, but uh, purely looking at cloud as an infrastructure, I, I think would be a mistake because I think the beauty of the cloud is it, it provides, it offloads, um, it's the aid of flexibility. It offloads a lot of the responsibility of managing that, that resource, that that, that flexibility. To a cloud provider so that you can focus on what you really need to do very much like an operating system you know offload an application don't have to deal with all your hardware you know resources and it's very much to that same low you know concept but it extended a much higher level the problem though however is the cloud is also far more flexible it's another level of abstraction, right so some of the typical security control that you know we used to employ that that mostly based on uh, securing just on ring fencing and protecting a certain you know domain or or a, a pseudo enclave type of concept where you know there's still ways to get underneath around it and and, and do you know side channel I think a lot of those are um, uh, need to be we need a new new way to look at it. And and you hear a lot about the market about, you know, zero trust. It's It's been out there forever. Zero trust is not new. Is that, you know, I think the difference is, it's not like, you know, we didn't want zero trust. Is that I think the need right now is much higher. Is that we, we just don't have much we can trust anymore. That's really what cloud has changed. And so to that degree, I, I think what, um, where cloud comes in is cloud brings you flexibility on your workload, on your storage, on your access. It's really that scale and flexibility and access. Um, people, um, I think, often you know, connect cloud with you know, connecting with their client. I think they're mostly talk about SaaS versus an IES on that level, mm-hmm. which is now you can present API, you can present a SaaS platform, and so on. SaaS present a whole different set of security constraints. I'll start with the cloud and I'll get into SaaS and I'll get into application. All three of them are all tightly coupled, connected. And I'll and I'll give you the punchline before I get into details so that you know I won't lose you there. It, it, the punchline is very simple. Is you, you have to look at it as I mentioned zero trust, but zero trust in a sense that you have to look at it from soup to nuts from one end to the other end. You're no longer just your own company. You are part of your vendor. If your vendor is the weakest link, you have an issue. Somebody DDoS one of your suppliers SaaS service, you go down, you go down. And and we've seen cases where the actual extortion is actually not done to the, 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 the end point of the end group, which is the, the conversion that the extra ultimately the B2C business. It's actually done to one of the suppliers. They DDoS the supplier and then and then and then they blackmail the retail company. So we're seeing quite a bit of use cases or attack you know cases like that. And so, what you really need to do is, you know, look at it from end to end. What do you rely on? Look at it from a resilience perspective, not just on, you know, what you would lose, but look at it from how resilient you are, um, you know, from uh, against a lot of these cases. So, um, if it's a SaaS service, your identity, how you actually map out identity with them, how do you rely on them, how do you find them, how do you identify both parties? All of those key aspects of it is absolutely critical. Do you have a backup? If a SaaS service goes down, what do you do if you don't have a backup? Do you just, you know, fall back into a system that at least could allow view only system? Or do you fall back into, you know, a, a panic mode and, you know, go, and then go around and start, you know, connecting with anything? Because that could be a, that could be a, that could be a, an attack vector as well, which is DDoS one of your supplier and then see what how you react to it and then forge as, as somebody else that might help you, it's a very common case in social engineering. But you know that could be a big aspect of how the bad guys could get in. And so, look at what happens from a do a do a tabletop exercise, or not one, but continuously, to see what and how do you react to those cases. Not just from an organization perspective, but look at your cloud, look at your SaaS providers, look at your partners, and and from but but focus around your company and your client. Uh, how they would impact what is the blast radius. So those are the things that I think the cloud has really changed because we're no longer just in you know, our own company, we're we're really connected very much. But there, there are more technical aspects of it, which is, you know, what do you store your keys? How do you manage your keys? Well, everybody in the keys, key vault, right? Isn't that great? It's like, no, that's that's a good start, but we're ways behind on that one actually. So uh, what do you do when your your cloud is so flexible? Your storage is so flexible. How do you enforce that? How do you actually attach that? That's where automation comes in. So security on cloud is very much relying on a lot of the automation that's built into it. If not, it's it's going to be horrible. One more thing about that is cloud providers have done a wonderful job uh, stepping into providing security features. I think they understand the need for it. They know that this is a big inhibitor for people moving from on-prem to cloud. I think you know. my recommendation is take a look, serious look. My experience so far is directly using the cloud-native secure you know, API is the best way to go. You can use abstraction layer, but don't just use abstraction layer. Um, really make sure that you spend the time to uh, integrate. And, and, and it's never about just the tools. It's about how you use the tools. But the native SDKs are very, very helpful because it gets you to the actual insight as opposed to just a green button and a green you know, light and a red light.
1: You'd mentioned uh, retail a little bit earlier in Magecart. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of some trends in AppSec by vertical. I'm thinking particularly about sort of data theft uh, in healthcare and maybe some of the large uh, transaction lateral attacks, you know, in banking. And I just want to know a little bit, just hear a little bit from you about sort of how these things are operating for these, these verticals.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, each one of those really is a separate podcast. To be honest with you, so um, when you look at retail, retail, the top two, the top two really are um, ghost accounts, which is bots, and uh, trimming. Those are the top two that we're seeing out there, um, uh, and I'll explain what they are. So on uh, the ghost accounts, and for the bots, basically they get into your system. Uh, forge bad accounts and then sell it to the bad guys and then go in there and then do lateral attack or um uh or basically they're just dormant and they stay there until they find users for it uh it it, it has a number of issues with anywhere from you know of course direct threat which is some bad guys can take advantage of those accounts to then you know gain more access or even run transactions to as simple as generating load actually they've done that and generating load so that they can actually use it for other type of attack or forgery to you know chain to another system which is you know attackers built trust through that way which is they have an account get into your system uh maybe they don't trust you maybe, maybe they don't trust that user but maybe you know one of the vendors would trust your open connect or your connection much more and then they hopped onto another site and now they trust them a little bit more, and then get closer, and then hop on another site, and then they can get to what they want to get to. So uh, all the way to the fact that it just um, it's just difficult for retailer to even understand what's going on because it's not easy to pick out between your real users. They just see people not engaging. Well, not engaging means could be just somebody didn't like the service, It could be somebody just tried it once or have difficulty. Could right. be a could be a technical glitch. But it could be a real security issue, so that's the part about ghost account that's difficult. Trimming, however, it's another aspect of it. it's been around for quite some time. Now it's you know because of uh, MazeCard and, and a couple of other um, other plugins, and um, the, mostly on a client side, some of them man in the middle. But you know, really, what it does is it, it injects itself directly on a client plugin <clears throat> most of the time. Excuse me and sometimes it's it's sitting in between what it does is it would you know expand transactions it would trim transaction it would rerun transactions uh, all of those aspects of it because it's forging as a client uh, it's very difficult for the back end to actually understand you know what's going on this looks like a normal user so that's hurting tra- uh, uh retail uh, a lot there are also uh, a lot of fake reviews. that's a different aspect of it. The fake reviews are also hurting the ecosystem for retailers um, not because just because of, of it's affecting how you know it, it's making the, the system less useful. It's actually much more around uh, making the um, basically pushing all your sentiment analysis pushing, or your perception of a system, you know, to one side. And, and that's where, that's where it's affecting, you know, a lot of the retailers now on, on banks, uh, there, I, I, and I hate to say this, but ever since the, the, for example, the swift attack, the, the large $95 million transaction bank of Bangalore in India, there are lots of copycats and it, and it spins out with, you know, Hermes and, and and, and uh, a lot of the other groups that came out that basically use similar type of breach kit, um, but expanding out to do extortion. And so we're starting to see a lot of that, but sometimes they're not extortion based, they're just lateral attack, as you mentioned, which is to get in there and then they start to spread horizontally across the board. Um, those are problematic. We're, we're, we're seeing those. And then, you know, healthcare, you mentioned, healthcare, there are two aspects of it. One is on, on theft, on data theft, um, because of, you know, the nature of business, but we're also seeing a lot of ransomware. So you probably saw some of the FBI reports, um, on, um, a number of, of ransomware group, uh, that is out there right now targeting specifically and, you know, for hospital healthcare and, and, and so on. So, we're starting to see those because they're seeing the yield. They're seeing that, and it's these are people that um, they're attacking where it hurts, so that people would react to it and just pay up, you know, as quickly as possible. Then they move on. Is is it's, it's, it's uh, when I say bad guys, it's absolutely bad guys, right? So, um, so it's really unfortunate, and really bad that that this is happening, especially to where we meet them the most, especially with healthcare these days. We really need them, support them the most, but that's exactly what's happening, which is people are attacking them because they know that everybody needs um, attention to it now. They would get paid very quickly, um, and so that's why you're seeing a lot more motion into it. And I think a lot of the a lot of the effort that's been put in place around, you know, a lot of great organization coming up to actually have more maturity, and more services, and more um, around um, protection on these cases, but also as to how to recover and remediate, you know, when incidents like that happen. So I strongly recommend, you know, uh, people to look at seriously, look at their organization, do some, you know, exercises to figure out when things like that, it's not an if anymore is when, when something like that happens, what do you do? That should be how you train the executive team. That should be how you work with your clients. That should be how you explain to your internal team that bad things will happen, how do you react to it, how bad it gets, how do you control the blast radius, that should be your focus.
1: Yeah, I'm so interested in this idea of you talking to these business leaders about this because it sounds like uh, you're saying that there's an enormous amount of responsibility that organizations have to have when it comes to security, much larger probably than ever before. And that it requires both a sort of a, a real investment and an attention to detail and commitment, right? Because if you've got to protect the whole supply chain, that's that's not a small deal. And if you have got to continually um, make sure you're doing the right thing, that's 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 a very serious commitment. So I'm curious: is is to sort of when you deliver this message, how it's met, and what you have to say to to get yourself heard? Is it? naturally accepted typically when you're talking to people or, or do you have to do some education and convincing what's, what's it like for you um, to talk about this stuff to business leaders?
2: I I love this. I love this question. So it's, it's all over the place. I'll be honest with you. It's never easy to ask somebody to picture uh, something bad happening. Right. So we do it all the time in, in in martial arts or self-defense or whatever it is. We, We do it all the time in security but that's not what happens. Um, that's not so easy, right? So I, I did a talk actually not too long ago on, on security and and, uh, and all the bots out there. And the first line that I had was, I asked everybody to close their eyes and uh, and I asked them to picture, uh, imagine logging log into your online bank and you see uh, your balance is zero. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> yeah, I get it.
2: So for people that's older like me, uh, that means my lifetime saving is gone. And my retirement is a dream now. For people who's you know have a family uh, or to go going paycheck to paycheck that need that paycheck, that means they might be homeless. For people who actually need that money for health, that means life and death, and that could happen. That could happen to anybody, any enterprise, any organization. That's the conversation that's, that's difficult because when you think about that, it's like, oh yeah, you're scaring people again. Well, that's where the line needs to be. It's, it's like anything else, unless you have your eyes on the attacker and, and, you know, living in a bubble is not a a good way to live. Um, Maybe for a short time, but I can guarantee you that it would be a very short time. And so, um, so to answer your question directly, the conversation is across the board. I mean, all over the place, I've got very, very mature and says, you know, I understand risk is part of my business. That's what I do. I manage risk. Then there are the other aspect of it and say, what do I do now? What do I do now? So that, but it's much better to have that reaction when things are okay than to actually have that reaction when things are really happening. So my advice is to have that tough conversation. Talk to the executive teams and 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 talk to the stakeholders early up front and really take it seriously, right? And don't don't just push that off to say, I, I hired people to do this. I hired IT to do this. I, I have that. No. When when something bad happens and you have to go in front of a public and talk to PR about a breach, that very quickly became your problem, trust me. And, and how much confidence you have is what your team's going to rely on. So it, it starts from the top. That composure, that that, that um, posture, the confidence and the honesty has to start from the top. And that's usually where I start the conversation.
1: And that's where we're going to end it. Sam, thank you very much. I appreciate you bringing it up.
2: Thank you so much, Ken.
0: This has been Silo Busting, a podcast from EPAM Continuum. EPEM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. Why do we do this? Because real opportunities aren't siloed. Thanks to Sam Raymond for their great conversation. Cheers to Kip Palalas, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Applause to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Allison Coten, and I'm off to ponder the aesthetics of online grocery ordering.